Hope you have your Bibles with you and you'll open them with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. The Gospel of Luke chapter number 9. Uh, let me tell you, we had a few more people over in the student building this morning. I appreciate that. Some folks getting up early and coming out there. We need somewhere between 60 and 100 people out there in order to really uh, relieve most of the crowding in this service. This service, uh, I, I think, will continue to grow and we need to make room for folks who come. And so if you're, uh, if you're available to come at 8.30 over in the student building on Sundays, I hope that you'll uh, sincerely pray about that. The series is Why Christianity? Reasons for Embracing the Christian Faith. This is on, this is on the, the front burner of a lot of people's minds in America today. Why do I need to embrace Christianity? What's so important about Christ that I should receive Him? The number of people who say that they do not want any kind of religion and want nothing to do with God has doubled in the past five years. And some of those people, when we talk about the issue of why Christianity and we try to explain reasons for embracing the Christian faith, they, they counter with questions, legitimate questions, questions that deserve an honest and intelligent answer. And so for the next three Sundays, including today, I want to address three questions. And the question that I want to address this morning is, what about the mean old church? Why should I embrace Christianity when Christians throughout history have committed such atrocities from time to time? And why should I embrace Christianity when the church is so full of hypocrites? Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 51. I'll be reading from the contemporary English version this morning. Luke says, not long before it was time for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he made up his mind to go to Jerusalem. He sent some messengers on ahead to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But he was on his way to Jerusalem. So the people there refused to welcome him. When the disciples, James and John, saw what was happening, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? But Jesus turned and corrected them for what they had said. Then they all went on to another village. Luke's text here in, in chapter 9 clearly tells us that, that Jesus' followers do not always have the mindset of Jesus. I love Luke's honesty in portraying this scene in the disciples' relationship with Jesus. It's not the only one that he portrays. There is another one a little bit later on where Jesus' disciples have been out ministering and, and preaching and teaching and casting out demons and healing diseases, and they come back to Jesus. And, and some of the disciples said, Lord, while we were out ministering, we ran into this man who was casting out demons in your name, and we stopped him because he wasn't with us. And Jesus said to him, he said, fellas... He said, if he's not against us, he's for us. It wasn't uh, necessary for Jesus that everybody agree with everything that he and his disciples were teaching and doing. As long as they were for him, embracing him, that for Jesus was enough. And he, he reprimanded the disciples for stopping the man. There was another case, and again, Luke is the one who, who tells us about this. You remember Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. It's the night before he's to be crucified, and it's early, uh, it's early in that Friday morning, still dark. Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. The Bible says there he prays 
three times and he prays so earnestly that his sweat drops as, as though it were great drops of blood. And he gets up and his disciples are there and they're sleeping. And all of a sudden, a whole regiment of, of soldiers comes up led by Judas. You recall the story. And they come up to Jesus and they wake the disciples. It's early in the morning. Everybody's in a bad mood. Nobody's in a good mood that early in the morning. And one of the soldiers comes up, stands up in the front, and Peter, you remember this? Peter takes a sword and he chops the man's ear off. Now, I don't know what he thought that would produce. But he chops the man's ear off. Now, Luke is the only one of the Gospels who tells us that after Peter did that, Jesus reprimanded him rebuked him for doing it, he reached down on the ground, picked up the man's ear, and put it back on his head. Now clearly Jesus was not pleased with what Peter did. And, and so Luke, in telling us these three stories, tells us that there are times when Jesus' followers don't act like Jesus. Now this has been the case throughout history. And this uh, contradiction between uh, the attitude of Jesus' followers contrasted with the attitude of Jesus himself has produced such a problem in our world that many people, because of it, don't embrace Christianity at all. Why should I embrace Christianity when the church has committed so much violence and is so full of hypocrites? I have a slide for you. Mahatma Gandhi, the leader of India's independence movement in the beginning of the 20th century, said this classic quote. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, Gandhi is not the only one saying that today. And so you and I have a decision to make. We, we have some, some reflection to experience and undertake in our lives. Dan Kimball, pastor of uh, a vintage church in Santa Cruz, California, uh, wrote a book just in the recent years entitled, They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. That book is based on a series of interviews with non-Christians about how they feel about Jesus and how they feel about the, the Christian church. And those conversations reveal that while many people have a positive uh, picture of Jesus, they don't have so positive a picture of Jesus' church. And this is a major problem, I think, in our world. And so really, here's the question. Why should someone embrace Christianity when the church is responsible for so much injustice and so full of hypocrites? It's an uncomfortable question, isn't it? I see some of you with wrinkled up eyebrows. And yet it's a question that because so many people are asking it, it's a question that, that you and I need to confront it. We need to address it. I, I, in, in reading over the last uh, several months, I've read several uh, responses to this question, why should I embrace Christianity when the church is, is guilty of committing injustice and so full of hypocrites? Uh, one writer said that the church has not committed violence. He responded by saying, it's not true that the church has committed violence. The church hasn't committed violence. This is a writer who has his head in the sand. Any objective reading of history will tell you that there have been times throughout Christian history when the church didn't act like Jesus, when the church was guilty of some pretty bad things in the name of Jesus. In fact, there are some times when the church, Christians, have done some things 
in the name of Jesus that are as atrocious as some of the things that Muslims are now doing in the name of Allah. Another response is, well, yeah, the church is guilty of some, some violence, but the church is no more guilty than other religions are. There's some truth to that statement. Timothy Keller, in his great book, The Reasons for God, uh, issues this response, that the church, yes, is guilty of violence, but it's not uh, any more uh, uh, violent than has been other religions in the world, in particular, even religions today. That's true. Another response that he gives, and also Dinesh D'Souza, in his, again, an excellent book, What's So Great About Christianity?, uh, D'Souza said that actually it's non-religious regimes that, has that have contributed to the most violence in our world today. Uh, atheistic regimes like, like Hitler's Nazi uh, regime and some of the atheistic regimes, communism in Russia, he says, have committed more atrocities or at least as much atrocity as has the church in uh, our world throughout Christian history. Let me say uh, just a word about those three responses. One thing, to deny that the church has ever committed violence is just simply dishonest. That response is totally, totally to be rejected. The other two responses, that other religions have committed as many atrocities or that non-religious regimes have committed atrocities, there is some truth to those. But still, it is a shirking of the question. When we try to say, well, yeah, uh, we've done some things, but have you looked at these folks over here? That's just a deflecting of the question. The question is, what about Christianity? You're asking me to embrace Christianity, but the Christian church has been guilty of violence and hypocrisy. How can you expect me to embrace the Jesus that you preach when you are so full of guilt? And so I want to say a, a couple of things here. The first is this. The fact of the matter is that throughout history, there have been times when the church has been guilty of some pretty horrific offenses. You'd think that some of the things that the disciples did that I just shared with you, that Jesus reprimanded, that they, would, they would speak it up, but, but it gets worse than that. We can go back to the Crusades that began around the year 1095 and lasted for 200 years. And yes, they were in response to the Muslims taking over Palestine. Muslims took over Palestine, and so the Roman Catholic Church basically issued a declaration of war against all Muslims. And it began in 1095, and they began attacking Muslims all over the known world. And they went into Palestine, and they took over Palestine finally. But ladies and gentlemen, when the church went on this crusade, not only did they, did they kill and torture Muslims, which is... It's not necessarily what you'd think Jesus would command people to do, but they also tortured and killed people who were not Muslims, but who were also not Christians. And they also tortured some Christians who were Christians, but they didn't believe everything that the main Christians believed. One historian, and I don't know if he was exaggerating or not, but one historian said, who was in Palestine at the time that the, that the Christian crusaders took Palestine back for the Roman Catholic Church, said that the blood in the temple was so deep that it was knee-deep of the soldiers who were going through it. There was so much bloodshed. You can go from the Crusades to the Inquisition that began around 1200 throughout parts of, of Europe in the Middle East. People who, who were... Uh, uh, under the authority of the church to go find heretics, people who they said didn't believe or, or didn't believe the right things, and they would take them and they would torture them until they were forced to recant the beliefs that they had and embrace the, the doctrines or the teachings of the church. And, and this, 
This didn't happen to everybody, but where it did happen, it was heinous. There were instances where, where men who maybe they were Christians, but they didn't believe every, every teaching of the church, they were strapped down, their heads tied back, their arms tied behind their, their backs. Their mouths were forced open. And they were told, you can either recant or we're going to torture you until you recant. And if they didn't recant, if they didn't change their beliefs, they had these things called tongue scissors. And they would reach into their mouths and they would start slicing up their tongues, the tongues of these men like confetti. This is the Christian church that did these kinds of things. And so, yes, the church has at times been guilty of some horrific offenses. King Henry VIII in the 1500s. He was a, a devout Catholic, and he instructed the, the, the cardinal and the bishops under him there in England to, to burn at the stake anyone who was not a Catholic, especially after Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation. There was a, a, a wide sweep of people turning to Lutheranism in England during the time of King Henry VIII, and he had people tortured, burned. And then, of course, the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, and so he seceded from the Catholic Church and started the Anglican Church with him as the supreme head, and then he started burning at the stake people who were Catholic. He changed it all around, and all of this was in the name of Christ. 1692, 1693, Salem, Massachusetts. The Christian community there decided to try a number of people for witchcraft. And in spite of the fact that they were constantly saying, look, we didn't do this. Many of them saying, we didn't do this. We're not guilty of this. Many of them were in prison. Some of them died in prison. Some of them were tortured. Others were hanged. And all of it was in the name of purifying the church. In the 1800s here in the southeast, in churches just like ours, although Palmetto wasn't around during the time of the Civil War, just before it and just after it, there were preachers like myself who got up and used the Bible to condone the enslavement of other people based on their color. It was an atrocity committed by the church. In the 1960s, civil rights abuses were condoned, especially again in the South. And I love the South, but there were civil rights abuses that were condoned, especially in the South. And there were men who would put on these white robes with just little holes from their eyes, KKK rallies, and they would be burning crosses in people's yards on Friday night, and they would stand up in the choir on Sunday morning and sing, Just as I am without one plea, but that my God would die for me. So yes, it is true. The church has committed horrific offenses in the past. To deny this fact would be dishonest. To try to excuse the church's behavior by saying, oh, but look at those other people, is just as cowardly. There's a second statement that I think that we need to confront, that we need to acknowledge, and that is this. It is also true that the church is full of hypocrites. We've all experienced it. You've experienced it. You've experienced preachers who were hypocritical. You've experienced uh, deacons who were hypocritical. You've experienced other, other people who claim to be Christian on Sunday morning, lived like hell from Monday through Saturday. The lives that they verbally projected were not compatible with the lives that they were living and you were watching them and you thought, my gracious, is this really Christianity? I don't want any part of that. The church is full of hypocrites. It's true. I was reading a book recently by Hal Sider and uh, 
a fellow by the name of uh, a house seed and Dan Grider. It's, it's entitled The God Questions, Exploring Life's Great Questions About God. And they, they dealt with this issue of, of the church uh, being full of hypocrisy. And they make three uh, responses, three statements that I think are worth me sharing with you. First of all, they said this. They said the church should be full of hypocrites. How about that? The church should be full of hypocrites. If you think about it, even though at first you think, ooh, no way, we shouldn't be full of hypocrites. Actually, we should. I mean, think about it. Here's what we preach. You come just as you are to the Lord. You don't have to clean up your life before you come to the Lord. You come to the Lord. You receive Him. And throughout your life, He will, he will conduct this process, this lifelong process and journey of changing your life and mine. And at no point are we fully perfect in this life. I know some people believe that, that you can, uh, you can achieve a sinless perfection in this life, and they can go on and think that if they want to, but it's simply not true. And so at any point in anybody's life, there are periods of hypocrisy. We're, we're, we're all a work in process. We're all on a journey that none of us has completed. And because we haven't completed, then certainly you should expect hypocrisy in the church. By the way, if I ever find a church, if I ever in my looking for the perfect church find a church that is hypocrisy free, the moment that I join it, it ceases to be so. The church should be full of hypocrites. Second, he says not all Christians are hypocrites. That's true. The church is full of hypocrites, yes, but not every Christian is a hypocrite. Now, I believe all of us from time to time have been. All of us from time to time commit hypocritical things. But we can all think about people who, whose lives were so godly. They had such a positive impact upon our lives for the cause of Christ that we knew they weren't hypocrites. So not all Christians are hypocrites. But, but more important than any of that is this third response they gave. Jesus was not a hypocrite. How many of you who are Christians, how many of you who are Christians here today, when you came to make a profession of faith, your profession of faith was something like this. I accept the church as my Savior and my God, especially the Baptist church. You didn't do that. You accepted Christ. Listen, the church is full of hypocrisy, and it will always be full of hypocrisy because it's full of human beings. But Jesus was never a hypocrite. He never embodied hypocrisy. And when we come to Him, we come to Him to receive Him and not the church. Ryder said this, he says, While most people detest hypocrisy, none of us would be eligible to join any organization that keeps hypocrites out. So let me make two statements. One is that rejecting the Christian faith because of what the church does or does not do, that's a bad decision. Any decision you make with regard to faith needs to be based upon what Jesus did or did not do and who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And the second statement I want to make is this. In lieu of the fact that many people are, are basing their decision on whether or not to embrace Christ on looking at you and your life and me and my life, what kind of people should we be and what kind of life should we be living? When people look at you, 
Do they see a Jesus that they want to embrace? Or do they see an angry Jesus? Or do they see a selfish Jesus? Or do they see a self-righteous Jesus? Or do they see an apathetic, uncaring Jesus? Or do they see a Jesus of grace and mercy and love and righteousness and grace? The church needs to think long and hard about what kind of perception we are presenting to the people that we meet. Is the Jesus they see in us the Jesus that they read about in the Gospels? Or can they say, like Mahatma Gandhi, I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Jesus. A person should base his or her decision about Christianity, not about what the church does, but about who Jesus is. We're about to have an invitation. And the invitation is going to be your response to one of two questions. The first question, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you received Him? Have you have you made a decision to receive Christ into your life as your Savior and your Lord? If you haven't, right now will be the opportunity to do that. Here's the second question, and it'll, it'll, appeal, it'll apply to most of us here. In lieu of the fact that most people, many people, will, will decide whether or not to receive Jesus based upon what they see in you, what changes do you need to make this morning in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge, Lord, that there have been times when the church has not at all resembled our Lord. There have been times when we treated people unjustly. And to make it worse, we would treat them unjustly and do it in the name of God. Lord, there have been times when what we said we believed is not the way we lived. And so our walk and our talk were going in two totally different directions. Lord, we've been reminded this morning that many people are making their decision about Christ based upon what they see in us as your church. And Lord, I pray that we would really think about the life we live and the Jesus we present. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who does not know you as their Savior. I pray, Lord, that people will make the decision to follow you. And I pray that our people who are already are Christians, that we will make decisive changes in our lives this morning so that we will be sure that the Jesus we preach and present is the Jesus in the Gospels. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.